Well, good morning. We are uh, praying for Bobby this morning as he is, he is hopefully recovering well uh, at home. So we are pausing our uh, study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'll ask you to open with me to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 11. I'm thankful to Joe for what he read to us uh, at the beginning of our, of our uh, service from John chapter 1. When John uh, writes this gospel, he gives an interesting statement there, and it was at the very end of what, what John read to us. He said uh, in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is what we see the Lord Jesus Christ doing all the way through the gospel of John. As He lives and speaks and acts, He is revealing God to us. The question I want us to ask together this morning is, what do we learn about God as we watch Jesus in John chapter 11? If you have now turned there, you've probably noticed that what we find in this chapter is the account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, a fairly well-known story to us. Uh, so the question for us is, as we watch Jesus interact with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in this chapter, as we watch him love them, as it's going to say that he does. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about the love of God? And I'm going to suggest that we're seeing something there uh, very significant in terms of teaching us about love from the divine perspective. And we see it in watching how Jesus loved those three individuals. Before we talk about what that is, I'd like us to remind ourselves of what happened here by reading this account aloud. So I'm going to read to us uh, verses 1 through 44, most of this chapter, uh, simply so that we can take back in again the whole picture, the whole story at the beginning. It'll be difficult for us to uh, see this in its, in its fullness if we don't do that. Uh, so if you are able, with that length of passage, would you please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word? I'll read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 44. <clears throat> Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when he heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Lazarus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always uh, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Father, we pause now before you, giving thanks for your word that you have again today provided to us. Father, cause us to hold it with trembling hands. Cause us to love it and to revere it. And we pray, Lord, that you would feed us by it. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your children. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The truth is that there are a number of things we can take from an account like this, certainly an account of this size, and an account uh, as, as powerful as the one that we have here. Uh, our aim this morning is going to be uh, to consider just one of those things, and that is to consider this question. When we see divine love put on display here in John chapter 11, what do we learn about the loving character of God? who he is and how he loves. What do we learn about that by watching Jesus here with Martha and Mary and Lazarus? And I want to open by, by telling you two truths, two inseparable truths that we're going to see here, and then we're going to walk through this passage in three sections and see it put on display in each of those three. Here are the two truths that we can take away concerning the love of God. Number one, when God acts for the glory of Jesus, as it's going to say here that he's doing, when God acts for the glory of Jesus, that act is always an act for the eternal happiness of his people. Those two things God has so, so acted in creation and in his people that those two things are never separate. The glory of Jesus and the, happy, the eternal happiness of his people. So we could say it this way. That which glorifies Christ blesses Christ's people. We're going to see that here very powerfully. The second truth we're going to see is connected to it, and that is that God prioritizes that. God prioritizes his glory and our eternal happiness over our temporal happiness. It is something that the scriptures tell us about, but in a place like this, when we get to see it in action, it is especially memorable to us and impactful. So let's see both of those truths fleshed out in three sets of statements and actions from the Lord Jesus here. The first set we're going to look at is the unit of verses 4 through 16. Would you look with me back at verse 4? In verse 4, we read this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And stop there. Let's think very carefully about what Jesus has just said here. He said, This illness does not lead to death. Well, of course it does lead to death, right? We just read the story. We know what's going to happen next here in terms of Lazarus. But of course, so does Jesus when he made that statement. This illness does not lead to death. It's not hard for us to understand what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying. He is thinking about the completed outcome of this situation with Lazarus, isn't he? When he says this illness does not lead to death. Jesus knows that when he's done with Lazarus' current situation, when he leaves, Lazarus is going to be waving goodbye to him, not laying in a tomb. It's not hard for us to understand what he's saying here, but it does say much to us about the perspective that Jesus is operating in. The perspective in which he's thinking and the perspective in which he is speaking when he says something like that. You think we already get a glimpse here? that Jesus works on the basis of a much wider perspective than the one that you and I live our day-to-day -day lives in? That he would make a statement like this? Furthermore, in verse 4, we see 
that Jesus not only gets that full perspective of what's happening here and what God is going to do, he understands some things about Lazarus' situation. He understands that Lazarus' illness is from God. It is not random. It's not an accident that he's sick. It's certainly not meaningless. It's for a purpose. And Jesus understands exactly what that purpose is going to be. He knows that this situation with Lazarus is going to serve the purpose of glorifying God. That's what's going to happen here. That's God's intention here. That's what he said in verse 4. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So just looking at verse 4, what's Jesus' priority in this situation in Lazarus' life? Can you see that in verse 4, his priority is that this situation will end with the Son of God, that's him, with the Son of God being glorified. This is what he tells us his priority is in verse 4. He is going to move in such a way that the situation of Lazarus' illness will glorify the Son of God. Now, if we come to verses 5 and 6, we get another statement of the priority of Jesus. But it doesn't sound the same as that. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Not the way uh, that we expect that statement to end. And that is by design. John writes it in this way that it would be surprising to us. And you need to know that verse 6 is translated correctly. This is exactly how John phrases this. Jesus loved them, so, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he delayed another couple of days. In other words, what moves him to delay, what moves him to bring about what happened next, what moves him is his love for them. That's what we read in verses 5 and 6. And here's the point. Do you see that verse 4, Jesus states his intention to bring glory to himself. That's his purpose here. It's his motivation. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus states his intention to love Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That's his intention. He's going to accomplish them both as he acts. Now this is, if we just zoom out for a moment, it's simply wonderful for us. His work for God's glory is going to prove to be the greatest possible gift of love in this situation for his people. Uh, And that's that's just Romans 8.28 being lived out right here in front of us to see. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Right? Paul writes that. We see that those things lived out right here in John chapter 11. And if we were able to go up into heaven right now with a microphone and interview Lazarus or Mary or Martha about this situation that they had gone through, they would smile and they would say the very same thing. What Jesus did in that situation was wonderful. That's what they would say right now. But some of you may be thinking about just how much of their real human situation we have just glossed over in making those statements. What did it mean for them for about a week of their lives that this would take place? Well, it meant that Mary and Martha had to sit by the bedside of their brother 
as he grew weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker. They had to sit. They had to pray to God, asking for healing. And it's, very, it's even unique for them because they know that there's a man of God out there in reach that if they can just get him to come, healing will happen. They know. That's what they're going to say to him, right? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're sitting at his bedside and they know this and they're watching him and his breathing is getting more and more labored. And they have to sit there as his heart stops beating. The next morning, they have to try to get out of bed. They have to wake up and then have that experience where they remember what just happened the night before and try to get up and plan the funeral of their brother. They have to go through these things. And they do them while Jesus intentionally sits by in the nearby town, waiting for those things to happen. That's what it looks like on the ground. And what we find here is that Jesus is living out, and I had to look up these terms because I'm not a camera guy at all. You can ask my family. I don't like taking pictures. Maybe, Brady, you can tell me if I got this right. Jesus is living out a wide lens love and not a zoom lens love. Did I get that right? You don't know. Who's our camera expert? (laughs) Think about the difference between those two. Uh, If you don't know cameras either, you can still understand the idea of a wide lens love or a zoom lens love. It's not hard for us at all to think of illustrations and to realize that one of those loves is better than the other. Uh, if, uh, if you go tomorrow morning and get breakfast with, with a good friend and you sit down and you, you suddenly realize that they've got something going on on their face. Maybe they've got toothpaste in their beard. Maybe they've got a big piece of food stuck between their front teeth. You suddenly see that and they've got no idea. You have a decision to make in that moment. You love this person. They're a good friend of yours. You have two different ways you can love them in that moment. You can love them in a a way that so so values how they're feeling right now. It has such a desire, a good desire, to protect them from embarrassment uh, that leads you then to go through the conversation saying nothing to them, making them feel very comfortable, and then off they go for the rest of their day. And we know what that leads to. But you can love them in another way, too. And that's a way that, that still loves that person, but loves them in a different way. A way that understands and is able to see the potential for greater embarrassment, uh, etc., etc. And therefore, you choose to break the peace in the moment and say something to them. Something that actually produces a bit of maybe a shame or an embarrassment in that moment. Now, we can see those things and I think understand very clearly that one of those loves is superior to the other. The lesser love in that situation is lesser because it operates in a narrower perspective. We see it all the time in the realm of our own relationships with each other. Uh, Besides just food being stuck in our teeth. We think of, why is it, for example, that the book of Proverbs, over and over again, Proverbs 13, Proverbs 22 and 23, and many other places, we are urged, when we have children, to discipline our children. Do not withhold that from them. Why would he 
urge us to do that? Well, it's because he knows our, our nature. He knows that we love often. I think we've all felt this, this pull and this temptation to love our children in such a way that we so care about the narrow and how they are feeling right now that we're unwilling to bring discipline, to inflict uh, difficulty, even pain, uh, for the sake of something wider. And Proverbs comes in and pleads with us, do not withhold discipline from your children. He knows our temperament. He knows our tendencies. Our love for our children can tempt us to fixate on the short term and to be closed off to perspective. But see, God does not struggle from that temptation. And we learn in accounts like this one that as Jesus comes to us and walks among us and as he shows us who God is and how he loves, what we learn from Jesus in places like John chapter 11 here is that Jesus is not squeamish. He is not a man ruled by passions that drive him in ways that fail to reflect God's character. Jesus is a man determined to produce the glory of God and our eternal joy and happiness, even when it requires temporal suffering. He loved them, verse 5. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, we hear... Another reason that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 14, if you go down to verse 14, he's speaking with his disciples. They've misunderstood what he's been telling them about Lazarus' situation. So verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Look at what he says next. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. You see what this adds to the picture? We see God's plans now being worked for his glory and our good to produce faith, but we see that those intentions now are not just in the lives of those walking through that trial. We suddenly realize this is actually about more than Martha and Mary and Lazarus. This is also about the lives of the people that God's going to bring around them as these things go on. Do you ever wonder how much of what the Lord has brought you through is going to turn out to have been not even about you or not even for you, but rather will turn out to have been for the sake of the audience that God has assembled around you while he leads you through? I think of just two chapters before this in John 9, the question that was asked of Jesus, Lord, who sinned so that, that this blind man who is an adult now was born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither of them, right? Uh, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is what God intended. That man had quite a life of trial from day one. Why? So that in the, per, in, in the fullness of time, Jesus would come. That man's eyes would be opened. He would be set free from that affliction. He would know that it was due to Jesus and would trust in Jesus. Everyone around him would know that this was Jesus and would trust in Jesus. 
God is glorified. Every one of those individuals, their eternal happiness hangs in the balance. And Jesus does this for them. Verse 15 that we just read is really important in what we're seeing because it helps us define what we've said so far. How uh, how will God be glorified? Jesus is working to glorify himself and for our eternal happiness and joy. But how, how will those things come about? Verse 15 specifies God is glorified as men and women are brought to faith in Jesus as a result. And incidentally, if you were to peek down to the end of this account, you don't have to do this, but if you were to look in verse 45, here's what you'd read. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Well, what do you know? So Jesus' words and actions here in verses 4 through 16, they are coming from a man, here's what we're seeing, whose priority is to glorify God which he's designed creation in such a way that that simultaneously works for the eternal happiness of his people. And so full-orbed is his desire for these things that he is willing to produce temporal grieving and hardship. He waits two more days, bringing great grief and hardship for them. And guess what? In this particular case, very soon, but for every one of us, the time's going to come where he's going to take that away too, isn't he? The grief and hardship he brings, he takes away. And that's a part of the plan he has even for this specific instance in John 11. But right now, in this moment, he's got bigger fish to fry. He is working now for their eternal happiness, not for their temporal happiness. The second piece of this picture we see in verses 17 through 27 as a whole, but I'll especially direct your attention to verses 21 to 27. Here we see now Martha come out and meet with Jesus. Let me reread these verses, 21 to 27, for us. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her this question, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And stop there. Now let's be clear first about what Martha is not thinking and what she's not asking. There is no reason, if you look back at verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Given what John tells us here about this interaction, there's no reason for us to hear those words from Martha as an accusation against Jesus, a criticism. In fact, verse 22 really makes that interpretation impossible. That's not what she's doing here. I think what we're hearing in verse 21 is an acknowledgement on Martha's part of her trust that God is in control over what has happened. Also, there's no indication here, given what she says 
um, at the end of verse 22, or in verse 22, where we should not take this as any indication that she's expecting a bodily resurrection today. This is not an attempt for her to manipulate Jesus by saying, um, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's not trying to insinuate that he should raise Lazarus from the dead. That's not in her mind at all. Uh, And we can see that very clearly in verse 39 whenever they get to the tomb. If she's quietly hoping that maybe Jesus will resurrect him, then when he marches up and announces, move the stone, she's not going to respond like she does. Lord, he's been dead four days. There's going to be an an odor. Resurrection is not in her mind right now in terms of what's going to happen that day. Verse 22 really is a beautiful declaration of confidence in God and in Jesus himself. What I want you to notice is Jesus' statements in verses 23 to 26. And as we look at these, just remember something here. Remember that Jesus knows what he's about to do. And he knows the pain and sadness that's being felt right then by Martha and by Mary. He knows those things. And he answers her like this, verse 23. Your brother will rise again. And D.A. Carson calls this statement a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. A masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Is there in his own mind a bit of a, he knows what he's about to do, certainly. But this is not Jesus rushing to try to comfort Martha with news of what he's about to do in about an hour or two. That's not what Jesus is doing here. His priority is not to take away her temporal circumstances as fast as he can by reassuring her that this will all be over in a couple of hours. His priority is that she, and remember, we've already read, Jesus loves her, right? He's doing this because he loves her. His priority is that she whom Jesus loves will be blessed in this circumstance by letting it draw her mind to the ultimate source of her joy, And hope, which it does, she immediately thinks of the resurrection on the last day. He wants her to be blessed by this circumstance drawing her mind to that and by then helping her to see that all of it is connected to him. To him. Just listen to the rest of the interaction here. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now there's enough for a sermon series in this one verse, more than likely. But just notice this morning, Jesus' priority here for Martha goes far beyond the temporal grief that she is experiencing at the moment. He knows something he could say to her that would take that grief away instantly. But he's not sharing that yet. And he's not being cruel. Because there is something far more valuable going on at the moment. And he says to her, Martha, you have just made what you said back in verse 22, Martha about me and my relationship to the Father, it was beautiful. And Martha, when you said what you did in verse 25, 
about the coming resurrection on the last day, that was wonderful. But I need you to understand the connection between those two things. Martha, back in John 6, some people asked me to give them always the bread of life. And I had to tell them, I'm not here to give you the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You're missing some connections. I'm the bread of life. You're hoping in God's promises, including the promise of resurrection, and that's great. But you need to understand, I am the resurrection. There's no resurrection apart from me. I am the life. Martha, there's no life outside of me. And he says in verse 26, which again helps us make clear, he's not talking about the current state of things with Lazarus. He's not talking about, about this life right now. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Her brother's sitting over there dead. It's clear to her what he's directing her attention to. That hope you have for eternal life, it's connected to belief in me. You want that? Believe in me. The two are inseparable. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And she says, Lord. And she makes this incredible confession of Jesus. The threefold confession of Jesus. She says, uh, she confesses concerning him. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ you are the promised Messiah, the Savior that God has told us He's going to bring to redeem His people. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. That's Davidic kingship language. We've been waiting for this King that all the promises have been connected to. You are that King. You are the Son of God. You are the one who is coming into the world, which if you were to look back at John 6.14, you can see this is pointing to the prophet that they've been waiting for, that's been prophesied. A prophet is coming, greater than Moses, right? Who is coming into the world. She says, you are he. She takes all of her chips. And she puts them, <clears throat> she puts them on the table and she pushes them toward Jesus. All of her hope is placed there. Now I ask you, does that bring glory to the Son of God? That action that this leads Martha to undertake, does that have anything to do with the eternal happiness of Martha? And Jesus accomplishes all of this because he cared more for her eternal joy than she did for her temporal happiness. The third section that we come to is verses 28 to 37. And this introduces a really a crucial element now. As we see the interaction between Jesus and Mary. So Martha goes back and summons Mary at Jesus' request. Remember, when news came that Jesus was near, Martha got up and ran out to meet him. Mary couldn't even bring herself to get up off the couch. So great is her despair. She's sitting with the professional mourners outdoing them with her weeping. 
But Martha comes and summons Mary, and she gets up quickly and goes. And she gets to him in a very different way than Martha. She gets to him and she falls at his feet, weeping. And she repeats the first half of what Martha said. Mary says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we have two reactions from Jesus. The second one is that he weeps. He is going to enter into the grief of his people. We'll see that in a moment. But before that, it says something else. And in the ESV, it says, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And if we think that that captures what it's trying to tell us about Jesus' reaction, we're in trouble because it does not capture what is trying to be given to us from the heart of Jesus. I looked at this word. I read a number of commentaries on this statement. They all expressed great unhappiness at how our English Bibles have translated this statement that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And so far as I found, I think I looked at eight or nine English translations, all of them do that, or something just like that, except for the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's the only one that, that didn't. It's interesting. This word always denotes displeasure and anger. If you have an ESV study Bible, and maybe others, it says in a little print in the bottom, something to that effect. Just to give you a couple of examples of what's been said here. D.A. Carson, in commenting, and he translates it like this. He he translates it, uh, Jesus was outraged in spirit and troubled. Very different feel, to me anyway. Carson says this, It is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. Most English translations soften the passage, all without linguistic justification. R.C. Sproul is another that uh, I'll just give to you here. He says about this passage, Frankly, however, I'm troubled by this verse, specifically the translation. I have to wonder whether the actual meaning of the original Greek bothered the translator so that he didn't want to be exact in translating the term. I say this because the force of the verb here is much stronger than is indicated by the word troubled. A more accurate translation would be, Jesus was irate. Jesus saw everybody around him weeping and groaned in anger. So what's he angry about here? Well, maybe more than one thing. He's human, and he, he, he loves these people. I think it's... It's very likely that a part of his anger is at the destructive effects of sin and death that are going on here. That's certainly likely, and it matches what we're about to see, that he does weep with them. But the text is not pointing us in that direction. The emphasis we have in the passage is that he is groaning at the disbelief that's being put on display here. Not the sadness or the suffering. But the disbelief, we could put it this way, is there something different about the way a Christian grieves compared to, say, those that have no hope? Mary knows that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. She just said so herself. And you might notice that it tells us he, was, he reacted this way in a type of anger at seeing Mary weeping like this. It says, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who were with her, he was distressed 
in spirit, angry in spirit, and troubled. Well, it's the two things that are said about what, how he reacts to this sight. Displeasure and being troubled at what he's seeing. And actually, the same word is used again, just a couple of lines down. When the Jews see him weeping and they interpret it like this, with a question, well, wait, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Then again, he uses the same word. He was indignant again at that statement. And that's when they go to the tomb. So I, think, I do think there's a connection here between the faith that he is longing to see in those that he loves and this groan of anger that he expresses here. Verse 35 inserts what we've already mentioned, the very powerful addition, shortest verse in all the Bible, quite a powerful addition, and it helps us keep a right sense of Jesus' heart here when it tells us that Jesus wept. He joined in with their grieving. He entered into the feelings of loss and grief of those that he loved. But I wonder, now that you're seeing it like this, can you see where his love for them is prioritized? Does he care for their grief? Certainly he does. Where is his priority? Based on how this is written by John. His driving desire is not simply that they would be comforted, but that they would believe. That's what he wants for them. And this can be no clearer than right before he commands Lazarus out of the tomb, when he prays. It would almost be comical if the situation was not such a serious one. He prays out loud, and he says in his prayer, Father, I pray, uh, thank you that you hear me. I know that you hear me. I'm just saying this out loud for the sake of those around me who are listening, so that they'll know. And in fact, what does it say? Verse 42. He is praying on account of the people standing around that they may what? That they may believe that you sent me. This is the priority of Jesus, and it's the priority that accomplishes the love of God. It's the priority that produces the glory of God and the priority that produces the eternal blessedness and joy and happiness of his people. This is the Savior that has been given to us, one so completely aligned with the will of the Father, so perfect in his love for his people, that he loves us with a courageous Love with a wide lens love. And every saint that is in heaven today has been led through dark trials and suffering and uncertainty. And every one of them now as they stand before his throne, now seeing not dimly, but seeing things as they are, every one of them praises God for every moment of his leading in their lives. You know what else we see in this Savior? We keep reading the account of what Jesus is doing here. He not only loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus enough to lead them through this trial, sacrificing their temporary, temporal happiness. He loved them enough to give up his own temporal happiness, didn't he? We're speaking about a man who gave up the glories of heaven the perfections of heaven and chose to endure the humiliation of life on this planet subject to the laws of men, subject to the effects of the world around him, having to be tired and hungry and beaten and spat upon and disrespected and murdered. He never has led us ever 
to a place that he has not gone before us. And it's quite a nice segue, because really, this, this is what we get to celebrate together this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. His love for us, here's another way that the Bible portrays it. This is what it did. His love for us led him to drink the cup of the wrath of God that was due us. So that today, what we're going to do is we're going to sit here together and drink the cup of the blessing of God and not the cup of wrath. That's what it's called, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, speaking about communion. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Every one of us in here had the cup of the wrath of the eternal God coming to us. But if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he took that cup in his hands and drank it to the dregs so that we might be given the cup of his blessing. And as we hold our cups together here in just a moment, we can do that remembering. I mean, is this a, is this a joyful occasion or a sad occasion we're about to participate in together? My friends, this is meant to be a celebration, a joyful sharing together of what God has worked for us in Christ. So we can remember in a moment as we hold this cup, we're holding out the cup of blessing and not the cup of wrath. Because Jesus loved us with a love wide enough to pursue and prioritize God's glory, which produces our eternal happiness.